Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is with Linda Javen. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands, acknowledging that these are unceded lands and that treaty has never been made in Australia. Now, Linda Javen is an internationally published Australian author. She's a translator, essayist, novelist, and a specialist writer on China. Her new book is The Shortest History of China. It's a fabulously readable account of Chinese history that attempts to take us beyond the partisan headlines and explore the story of the most populous nation in the world. This conversation with Linda came from around the middle of last year, and it was designed to be part of a series on storytelling, the way stories in our world help shape our world. So it's a pleasure to be able to finally share it with you on the podcast. Join me as we discover Linda Javen's The Shortest History of China. I have an absolutely terrific writer, thinker, conversationalist to welcome to the show. It has been too long. Linda Javen, she is the author of The Shortest History of China, the book we are going to be discussing today. Linda, it's fabulous to have you back. It is so great to be back, Andrew. I was so happy when Sally told me, I said, you're one of the best book interviewers in the business. I just love our conversations, so I'm very happy. I've got in my hands the shortest history of China. You've written a book on China that covers thousands of years of history, taking in philosophical thought, political institutions, internal development and engagement with the broader world. If we don't try and put some parameters on our conversation, we might just fall into some highly enjoyable but long-winded waffling. So, what I did, <laughs> what I did, I did a quick Google before we got started. Now, if you look for China from the perspective of Australia, you find things like Australians have lost trust in the Chinese government. China lodges complaint against Australia at the World Trade Organization. Australia's top diplomat warns China is insecure and brittle. Now, so far, so political. So, I started to think then back to my childhood. And my strongest memories of awareness of China included the local restaurant that I feel like we all sort of maybe grew up with in our suburb or town, <laughs> resplendent with red lanterns. I thought of fortune cookies. And I also, I thought of um, what I learned. It was a Japanese teleseries of the Chinese classic Journey to the West that in Australia we, we saw, um, it was, the title was Monkey. <clears throat> so... I realised it wasn't then until I'd, I chose China as an elective at high school that I really got to know anything or, or something important about the most populous nation in the world. So maybe I thought that's where we start. Is there a desperate need for education, for understanding, for a few more books and a little bit more reading about the country that we know of in English as China? Absolutely. And not just in Australia. I mean, we are in a very particular, particularly difficult and tense time in terms of geopolitics and not just Australia, but 
pretty much the rest of the world's relationship with China. I mean, some places have better relations than others. But even in, for example, some African countries, which have fairly close relations with the People's Republic of China, there are, there are issues involving um, labor disputes or environmental allegations about various Chinese mining projects and so on, and worries about debt. Uh, debt diplomacy, etc., debt trap diplomacy, and so on. So everywhere in the world, China is now uh, an issue, and it's sometimes a friend, and it's sometimes a frenemy, and it's sometimes a cause of incredible worry and tension. So it kind of uh, colors our perspective and means that we don't think of it as the long uh, you know, the very, very old country it is, the very old civilization and the very rich civilization. We tend to reduce our thinking about China to the People's Republic of China and specifically the Communist Party of China and even more specifically the Communist Party of China under Xi Jinping, which is a very special, it's a very special moment in Chinese history. And even just 30 years ago, things were not quite as they are now. So it really helps to take a longer perspective. And I think I've taken the longest perspective of all because I <laughs> I start this book, even though it's the shortest history of China, I start it with the, with the mythic creation of the universe. <laughs> so I, I do like going back and getting perspective, and I think that's important. And this book is aimed um, at readers, uh, it's not just limited to Australian readers. It's coming out in the US and UK and in all kinds of other editions, including Bulgarian and Italian and Greek and Portuguese and um, Russian, for example. Now, you've got me thinking there, and I, I, I come back to the reflections that I began with. The the two conceptions that I, I presented, my, my youthful memories and then also just my quick Google of the headlines, tended to reduce... China to kind of like an, an infantilized safe conception of um, food tourism and um, and sort of, sort of wacky TV or this antagonistic again you know frenemy or almost enemy um, they're very polarizing and there's there's not a lot of sophistication to that which can work into the hands of people that want us to think a certain way. So let's start. The, f the one thing that's really bothering me right now is that I keep saying China. You've also clarified for me I, that, that there is the People's Republic of China. But, I mean, in the, broad, in the broader scheme of things, that is a word that is a product of other languages that we use in English. So can we get a little linguistic? I know, I know that's an area you have, have some passing familiarity with. Can you introduce us to the way <laughs> that the nation we call China is referred to in their own language? And, and maybe can you give us a sense, does, does that name give us any insight into Chinese self-conception and worldview? Absolutely. It's such a good question. Um, and it's such an important one. And it does help us sort out uh, the different um, ideas of China that compete in, I think, most people's minds, you know, the Chinese restaurant and the dragon uh, versus and monkey <laughs> versus Xi Jinping and uh, trade wars. So in Chinese, um, the word uh, the, the word that's used for China as a nation, a country is Zhongguo. And that's an old word. And it didn't always mean nation. So I'll go into that in a second. But I'm first going to Say there's two main, there's many words that can refer to China. 
but most of them fall under the two main ones uh, that I talk about are Zhongguo and Zhonghua. And Zhonghua is more about civilization. It's an idea of Chinese, of enduring Chinese culture and civilization, of the gloriousness and the richness of that as well. Zhongguo um, in Chinese is uh, two words. It's middle and then um, country. And it's often been translated hmm, a little bit uh, loosely as Middle Kingdom. And then people go on from that to say China considers itself at the center of the world and so on. It's also useful to go way back to the origins of that phrase. Guo didn't always mean country. It could mean a, 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 a it would mean a city with a wall. So it, it had the idea of a of a walled or protected or bordered territory, uh, and there was population in it, and there was some notion of defense. So there's different ways of looking at the etymology of that. That's one of the more common and accepted ones. Um, this evolved eventually, but Chinese people throughout history, especially once you got dynastic uh, dynasties going, um, beginning in around, oh, I don't know, uh, you know, a couple thousand years um, before the Common Era, people began to, people thought of themselves not as, I am a Chinese person, but I am a person of the Tang. I am a person of the Ming. I am a person of, you know, whatever dynasty they lived in. So the idea of being Chinese as such evolved only really properly uh, towards the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century. And the way it evolved was because the last dynasty, the Qing dynasty, was not coping well with um, threats from imperialist nations and, uh, you know, the semi-colonial carve-up of, of a number of its ports and so on. Uh, it, was, uh, it was comparing itself very unfavorably to Little Japan, which is considered just a kind of a tribute nation in its sphere of influence, which had suddenly become a modern nation properly with the Meiji Restoration in the middle of the 19th century. And it was so much stronger than China at that point. So Chinese people began studying in Japan. A number of Chinese intellectuals went to Japan. And there they encountered a number of concepts that the Japanese had been um, first in translating. They've been translating works from everybody from law, you know, from from Hobbes and Locke to uh, other, to you know, a lot of Enlightenment thinkers and 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 beyond. So it was in Japan that the Chinese encountered uh, the concepts of, for example, modern nationhood. Because the Japanese, the other thing is the Japanese used a lot of Chinese characters in their translations. So it was very easy to carry these concepts from Japan back to China. Um, and this began, and a number of things, um, including archaeological discoveries, began giving Chinese people in this time a sense that they did belong to something bigger, and that thing could have a name. Um, and the name was China. In English, the word China first appeared in a Spanish text. Um, and it seems to have kind of come across as well from Sanskrit and from Japanese and so on, uh, referring to the first unifying dynasty of China, the Qin dynasty. So 
in foreign languages, the Qin, which uh, was found in 221 BCE, that gave its name to China, Qin to China. But in China itself, the idea of the nation is Zhongguo, and Zhonghua is the idea of that civilization. So it's kind of useful to break it down like that. From the outside, we, we have this way of looking at things as being very static. I, I see it today and therefore it must have been forevermore because I can't be bothered reading anymore. And that's just not <laughs> enough. And now we've got the shortest history that at least we can, we can start here. Now, you challenge the reader with the notion on page three, all stereotypes fall apart in the face of Chinese diversity. Now, equally, we live in a world that predominantly offers us stereotypes of China and the Chinese administration. Yeah. If stereotypes fall apart, though, are there any guiding principles that we might take into our reading and into our understanding? Yes, and I think the primary guiding principle is that Chinese people are like people everywhere. There's, there's shocking. good people, there's bad people, there's wise people. I know, how shocking. There's, there's smart people, there's stupid people, there are people who are, who are nerds, there are people who, are, who love just live for, you know, being in dance clubs. There's rock fanatics, there's speaking opera fanatics. Um, and the Chinese government um, today has a very strong interest in promoting uh, a notion of national unity. Um, uh, and that unity goes to unity of thought. So they will announce, for example, we Chinese believe, you will hear this all the time in official language, we Chinese believe, or um, you have hurt the feelings of the Chinese people. You know, so basically the Communist Party of China takes it upon itself to speak for 1.4 billion people. And sometimes when I've been in China and talked to people and they say, we Chinese believe this or that, I say to them, okay, you're a, whatever they are, like you are a uh, taxi driver, your income is approximately this. Do you think you think exactly the same way as, that real estate billionaire with a villa on the, on, uh, in the Western Hills? Or do you feel that, do you think you think exactly the same way as a, um, an old illiterate peasant woman in remote Gansu province? And they'll go, well, mm. <laughs> I'll go, it's just let's, let's break this down. And people, when they start to think beyond the cliche, um, I've never had a conversation like that that hasn't ended ended with very, very interesting revelations and self-revelations and all of that. It's always, I, I have these conversations all the time. Whenever somebody says that, you know, I usually um, question it. And the thing is, is that China is a country where you can find uh, Buddhist monks. Um, you can find billionaires who have their own private planes. You can find people who are, you know, are punk rockers. You can find Absolutely every type of person, and they have every type of interest. You know, some people are complete mahjong fanatics, or they, or or middle-aged ladies who get up and fan dance, you know, every morning in the park, uh, or sword dance. Um, but then you also have people who are into um, into you know gaming, uh, you know, video gaming. You have people who are into absolutely everything. You go into a bookshop in China, and some of these bookshops are actually—they're the size of—they're the size of multi-level department stores. They're amazing. It sounds amazing. And you can, oh, they're extraordinary. And you can find people um, sitting on the stairs or sitting on chairs, reading every sort of book. You know, this is 
people are people. And I think that's the really important thing to remember about China. I'm wondering about a couple of things that you've you've mentioned and also that I, I read. It seems like there are alternating periods throughout China's history of insularity or times when the country as it's as a whole was within itself, and then periods where there was more openness, for better or worse, to the rest of the world. And one period that really jumped out at me is the British imperial period where, you know, Britain were just running around. We know in Australia, um, we, we live in a country of un- unceded territory where the traditional owners have never been properly yeah. recognised. And there were elements of this happening in China. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how much the world that we see and and we look at the states like Hong Kong, states like Taiwan, how much what we're seeing playing out as modern history is attributable to that period of 19th century imperial British ambition? 19th century British and French and Italian and German and Japanese uh, imperial ambition very much shaped uh, uh, what happened after that in China uh, in a number of ways. But I just want to return to the point you made about periods of insularity and openness. So when when China or the dynasties that uh, ran China were um, in, in more traditional times before they had that very uh, aggressive and antagonistic um, and predatory experience of outside cultures, uh, China was, for example, in the Tang Dynasty, a very open place, and people came from um, uh, you know, Arabia and uh, Central Asia and India and so on. And the Chinese of the Tang Dynasty were so open to this stuff. They were playing Persian polo. They were cooking with Indian spices. They were dressing up in Turkish clothes. Uh, then you have periods of more uh, insularity. You have periods when they're very worried about attacks on the borders. And that those usually came from Mongolians or other nomads um, up in the north, um, but also the southwest was a very restive region, and Chinese dynasties would try to extend their power into the southwest, and the various tribes there, which are related to sort of Thai and Burmese and and, and other uh, ethnic peoples, they would fight the the, uh, the dynasties back. So, what happened was the Qing initially was a very strong dynasty, a very powerful one. It was not a Han Chinese dynasty. It was actually a dynasty founded by one of those northern tribes. Um, so they, in their glorious time, and they, they really did enjoy one of the great prosperous ages of China with the early emperors of the, of the Qing. The Qing was founded in 1644. <laughs> I always forget. People don't always have these dates in their heads. Um, so <laughs> from 1644, the Qing um, ruled China, and over the next century or two, um, a series of emperors, especially the Qianlong Emperor, um, in say the seventeenth, um, sorry, the eighteenth century, um, and seventeenth and the eighteenth century, um, expanded uh, expanded China to expanded the Qing to what we today know as China, Xinjiang was only conquered by Qianlong. He had to con- uh, actually, the Qing had to conquer <laughs> Xinjiang twice. I mean, it tells you something. If you know about the history of Xinjiang, it tells you a lot about what's going on today with the Uyghurs and so on. They conquered Tibet. 
and brought that into the empire. Again, a very sort of difficult conquest, very complicated one. But um, the big China that we know today comes from that. Now, China was confident and, and, and everything else, but it was also beset by some internal weaknesses, some structural weaknesses having to do with the way taxes were, uh, taxes were imposed and so on. Into this empire, which is just, it's, it's, uh, it's doing well, but it's got some structural weaknesses, came the British and others. The British were very keen on trading with China. They wanted porcelain, they wanted silk, they wanted tea. Um, China didn't really want anything the British were producing. Um, that's a simple version of the story. The British, uh, to basically make China take some of something that they wanted began forcing the import of opium. Um, and this is, uh, this led to the opium wars or it was part of the opium wars to force China to accept this import. Um, so yes, China began to have its doors forced open. So I mentioned the tongue earlier because you have to have this point of comparison. There have been times when China, Chinese dynasties have opened their own doors and they've been very open places. The Qing dynasty is a very different situation and we can see the origins of the kind of angry and defensive and, and, uh, outraged nationalism that is very much on display today in this century long experience of having imperial, of, of having, sorry, imperialist powers come into your country, demand that when their, their, their people are in your country, they don't have to obey your laws. That's called extraterritoriality. Demanding that they run your ports, that they, that they run river navigation on your biggest river, um, uh, you know, one of your biggest rivers, the Yangtze. Um, this kind of thing went on and became more and more aggressive as other countries jumped in after the British. The French were, were right in there. Uh, Italy, Japan, um, Germany, everybody wanted a piece of China. And so this period of openness when also because of these contacts and because of the desperate desire to strengthen China against them, some Chinese intellectuals began looking to these foreign powers for answers as to how China could become strong. So it was a very, very important time. It sounds like... Um... Yeah, my, my oversimplification of talking about openness. It's open in the same sense of someone breaking into your house, declaring themselves <laughs> they're your guest at gunpoint, and then making you cook them dinner. That's pretty much it, yes. <laughs> Very good summary. I like it. <laughs> now, again, one of the guiding principles I think I'm, I'm going to introduce to our, our conversation, Linda, is that... You have written the shortest history of China, coming in at, at a very modest, I mean, it comes in at under 300 books. If you are looking for a simpler answer to Chinese history, as, as some of my questions may seem to be, the, the best answer is it's complicated. If you want a more detailed answer, read the book. But I wondered if... I wondered if... It, sorry? I'm oh, sorry, sorry, I interrupted you. Yeah. It, it, it's complicated and we do need to do a little bit of the work. We do need to read incredible books like The Shortest History of China. But I wondered if getting an understanding of philosophy might also give us some insights. 
Now, if you thought I could oversimplify things before, <laughs> I, I got the sense. <laughs> I got the sense from reading that for millennia we have um, schools of thought of Confucianism and and Taoism that have occupied central positions in Chinese thinking, and they have um, they have helped inform. Well, very or sort of polarizing ways of going about the world. But then I also got a sense that one philosophical approach that really has uh, uh, ongoing reverberations is legalism. Uh, can you talk a yeah. little bit about uh, <laughs> whatever you think is most important for people to to get a sense of, and, and also how these philosophies are informing the world that we're seeing today? It's such a good question because um, I. And, and what I do in the shortest history of China, just to sort of briefly explain this, is that I, I take the story from the mythic origins of the universe all the way through the present and COVID and all that. But um, each chapter has a kind of uh, overriding theme or themes according to what is most important in that time. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and so <coughs> there was a time, sorry, there was a time around 500 BCE, which was incredibly fertile for philosophical thinking. And at that time, it was before the Qin Dynasty that gave China its name. There were all these warring states competing, these rival states. So philosophers <clears throat> arose trying to figure out how to manage the world. The world was in chaos. How do you manage it? And as you said, there was the Confucians. There were the, there was the Confucius and then his followers, the Confucians. Um, there was Taoism and there was legalism. And they're all very, very important. So Confucius, Confucianism set... Confu, sorry. <laughs> I'm, Confucius, uh, his basic philosophy of governance, to really oversimplify it, is that a ruler should be good and moral enact this morality through rights that are make all this visible and Im, Im, make you embody morality through things like respecting your ancestors through uh, burning incense before their um, before their names carved into what they call the ancestral tablets and so on and the emperor the ruler should do this on a grand scale so if the ruler is good and rules uh, in a good ethical manner um, the whole country will kind of fall into place, uh, down to uh, the patriarchs managing their families well. Now, this was very idealistic. It had a certain appeal because if, uh, if a ruler said, yes, I like this, um, they were adopting this, this, this position or this posture of being the good and moral person, right? Um, but there was another philosophy that was the anti-Confucian philosophy, and I'll, go to, I'll get to Taoism in a second. But this philosophy, also a philosophy of, of rule, um, is most typified by a philosopher called Han Feizer. And to this day, Confucianism and legalism have a very interesting um, relationship and are manifest in what we see even today, even with Xi Jinping. And I'll, 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 I'll go there. But legalism... To reduce again to a very simplistic formula, legalism says it doesn't matter. There's no, don't worry about overriding thoughts about morality or rights or anything like that. Right and wrong are what the ruler wants them to be. And 
the way you rule is by punishment for behavior you want to discourage and reward for behavior you want to encourage. So that's it. Quite simple. Um, you look at social credit systems today. You know, you do something good, you donate to charity, you get a little bit of a reward. Um, you do something bad, you jaywalk or you badmouth the Communist Party, you get a little or big punishment. Um, that's sort of the essence of it. So what happened after that was different, as time went on, different rulers of different dynasties basically wanted to always appear the great Confucian ruler. But how do you actually run the country? <laughs> Nearly every single one turned to legalism. And so it, there's been this tension. And you look today at Xi Jinping and the Communist Party, and they present themselves as, officially as the great, glorious, and ever correct party, right? This is, they have the moral authority. They, they ended the hundred years of humiliation that began with the British and the opium and all that stuff. They have this moral authority. Um, they, they drove the corrupt, uh, Guomindang and Jiang Kai-shek out of power. This is all the Confucian part of it. How do they act? And, and during the Cultural Revolution, you had to be, you had to be good and moral, but in that, in the, in the definition of the communists. Mm -hmm. So it's still the same thing. They're, what they say is good and moral is different from, say, what people said in the, in the Han dynasty or in Confucius's time, but it's still a notion of moral authority. At the same time, like past emperors, <laughs> the Communist Party of China employs a very strong system of rewards and punishments to guide behavior. So speak out against the party and your life could be over. You know, we can cut you out of your job. We can, we can, uh, we can limit your movements. We can put you in jail. Do things that we like and we reward you. We allow you to flourish. So this is very important. Taoism, <laughs> which has always been embraced by the kind of the kooks, the eccentrics, um, the, the people who really just go, I am over this. I don't like any of this. Get me out of here. This is the philosophy of, of, um, of flowing with nature, of, of inaction. But it's also a philosophy of government in a very strange way. Uh, because what it is is the, the, the idea is that the ruler, the best kind of ruler, does very little to push things. But people are doing things that are good and they, and they will credit themselves. And the ruler has actually kind of managed things from the top without pushing people too much. It's a very complex sort of um, thing. But it, but mostly the Taoists are just, get me out of here. <laughs> I want to sit by a stream. I want to drink. I want to compose poetry. Bruce Lee's Be Like Water just flow. Be like water. Be like water. That's Taoism. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, and it's my favorite. Oh yeah, it sounds like legalism is kind of like it's nationalized cognitive behavioral therapy, um, writ yeah. writ large. <laughs> it strikes me also that as you as you describe sort of Confucianism with ancestor worship and the the, the sort of the hierarchical structures that our um, obeisance is paid to with the the power of. Legalism, we, we have this setup where patriarchal structures are created, enforced, and, and endure. And 
from the very beginning of the shortest history of China, you highlight that you're going to be talking about the women who occupy interesting, important, um, maybe controversial moments, but they, they're there. They're not going to be erased. Can you talk a little bit about why this was important to you and how it, it might have been overlooked uh, previously? Yes. Well, in most short histories, um, we find the women taking um, a back seat. We get the big ones, the, you know, the empress who did this or the, you know, we, we get the ones who have to be there. But because of the way that record keeping um, official record keeping and histories were written in China. These these women often get get lost. You know, they they, they don't take um, prime place in histories. Uh, so, what you have to do is you have to go into sources that include um, art and literature. You have to look at poems that describe the lives of the ordinary people. You have to go looking for these women. Um, and then you find them, and they're amazing. Um, so among the ones that I highlight in this book, and it was definitely something I wanted to do, um, you have, and, and I also made certain choices, okay? So the very when I'm talking about the very beginning of Chinese writing with oracle bones, which are uh, bones that were inscribed by shamans um, when they were answering questions for um, rulers or wealthy people, uh, the, there's many examples. I chose a fantastic example of a woman who, um, who we learn her story through oracle bone inscriptions. Uh, her name was Fu Hao. She was the wife of a king. And according to some interpretations of the, of the evidence, she came to her marriage with a dowry of an army. <laughs> and she certainly led an army into battle in her time. So we get people like that. It was always a conscious choice. Uh, when I was profiling, a Chinese, ancient Chinese people invented just about everything. <laughs> okay, they really did. Like everything from the repeating crossbow to obviously paper and the compass and, and, and other things like this to systems of tuning instruments. I chose to highlight the story of a very interesting woman who was not no, nobody. She wasn't from a noble family. She came from an ordinary family. And it was a terrible marriage that she was, she had an arranged marriage, like all marriages were at the time. Um, and she, we're talking about like 12th uh, century, or I think she was 12th century approximately then. And um, she escaped. She just ran away uh, from an abusive uh, family, uh, abusive marriage, um, and went to Hainan Island, where there were these indigenous tribes, learned a whole lot from them about how to uh, dye cotton, uh, weave cotton, and so on. Brought it back 23 years later. She obviously didn't miss her husband. Um, 23 years later to a village and invented better machines for making cotton textiles. Uh, she invented a whole bunch of machines, and she was pretty much the start of the textile industry that still exists in that region and is the dominant textile industry of China. So these are really interesting stories to bring into the mix, um, including the fact that uh, China's very first, going up to modern times, very first computer was um, created, was invented by a team led by a female computer scientist. These are really, really interesting. Um, so I didn't want to, I really wanted to have them in there. I didn't want them to fall by the wayside, um, 
it was it was one of the things I wanted to do along with uh, making sure that the history of China also paid enough attention to the philosophy, the art, the literature, mm-hmm. society, um, demographics, and so on. I didn't want it just to be this dynasty and then that dynasty, this emperor and then that emperor. It's extraordinary how how patriarchy can pay lip service. I mean, I feel like it was it was Mao Mao Zedong who who said women hold up half the sky, and yet they can still then just kind of go, yeah, do you, you go hold up half the sky. We'll we'll take all the credit. Uh, <laughs> yes, well, <laughs> you have to look at the origin of that because a lot of people have taken that, including me. Before I did my deep research for this book, I always thought, oh, that's kind of feminist, and that's really cool, and that means that women should you know, have responsibilities in all sorts of areas. In fact, that saying came from a very specific uh, incident. And what it was, was China, it was in the mid-50s, and China was collectivizing the land, and, and people were being organized into um, collectives to carry out, uh, and to, or like rural, uh, to carry out farming, for example. So there was a little village, and in this little village, um, they had collectivized, and people were now, all land belonged to the collective, and people were paid for their labor according to what they call work points. So uh, work, work points could be transferred to, you know, goods and, and money. Now, the men were paid something like three times as much in work points for the same labor as women. So the 23 women or whatever it was of this village just went, yeah, we're not working. And they stayed at home. This just wasn't worth it. The woman who was in charge of women's affairs, um, uh, I think she was a member of the party in the village looking after women's affairs. She was like, hmm. She went to the village chief and she said, you know what? What if we paid women equal work points to men? I bet they'd come out. And he went, oh, worth a try. So he did that. They came out. They they tripled. They didn't double productivity in the village. They tripled it. <laughs> when this report filtered up to Mao, um, he then said women hold up half the sky and women were to get equal pay. But never once has a woman sat on the very, very top um, uh, ruling part of the Politburo, the standing committee of the Politburo, which makes the big decisions for China. Women have never, ever sat on that body. They were worried the sky would fall if um, if they let them. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was a that was an an undeserved zinger on my part. <clears throat> it strikes me in these in these stories that you're telling me, Linda, that you have brought a storyteller's eye to this history. And I mean, look, it, it may seem self evident to people that a history is a story, but you know, I think a few of us have probably fallen asleep in history class. Know that that <laughs> is, I have. <laughs> yeah, that that's not always true. Sometimes it's too many dates and and facts and tables and not enough of what actually happened. How did the storyteller in you make peace with the student and the scholar and the person who perhaps wanted to write a thousand page book to to produce this page turner? <laughs> That's it's really funny. It was I, I am a complete nerd, you know, and um, I love I, I, this morning I went off on a on a whole journey looking at a book which I want to buy even though it's like sixty dollars um, on Amazon um, uh, which is about traditional concepts of Chinese color traditional Chinese colors and how they were named and 
it's so beautiful. It's like there's a there's a there's a a a kind of a red which is called tipsy, red, tipsy cheek red. Wow! So it's that red of the blush of somebody who's drunk a bit too much. And there's that's another true. there's another color that's um, called uh, heaven water blue or heaven water green. I can't remember. And that's a, that came about when somebody left some green silk or satin out and the dew, which is heaven's water, um, wet it and it acquired a whole new sheen or a whole new hue. So wow. <laughs> I, I, could, I, just, I can go down rabbit holes like that for days. And I did. But <laughs> then I did have to come back and say, no, you're telling a story. And I tell, you know, you... I believe that this story is so important. I want it to be widely read. I want the shortest history of China to be something that makes people either, you know, that people want to read and they want to read all the way through. So I had to keep coming back to that. And the great thing about Chinese history is that it is full of those stories. If I'd known about those colors before, they (laughs) would be in there, you know. So it's that, that sense, which I think is intuitive, of what's interesting, what's fun, what's fascinating, you know, and, and always making sure that I got the important um, big story uh, in there, but choosing details and what to focus in on and how to sort of bring people, characters to life. Um, I think I was definitely working with my novelist's intuition. And to bring us full circle, to come back to some of the ideas of China that we might have from a, a childhood without much exposure or a Google search with perhaps too much of a single lens. How much did you need to consider your audience approaching this book in 2021? Did that shape your telling at all? Yes, absolutely. And what, one of the things I wanted to do, it was a really important thing for me, was to show how China evolved. And so when we look at China today, um, how can we understand it as a product of its history? So there were a couple of uh, storylines, you could call them, uh, that that really work to tell the story. And I I show them a little bit more. You know, they 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 work through the book, but then you be, it becomes quite obvious towards the end. One of these storylines, for example, is how nearly every dynasty was brought down, at least in part, by its own corruption. Because corruption causes a, uh, a, rule, a ruler to lose touch with the masses. And people can be suffering. Um, corruption sucks away money from, for example, public projects like flood management. So you can have people dying. You know, you can have people really suffering because um, they're being exploited by corrupt uh, officials and they don't care at the top because they're sleeping with somebody they're too interested in or, or whatever. Um, and so the idea that corruption can bring down a dynasty, which is very strong in Chinese history, in China, in, in, sorry, which is an idea that's very strong in the writings of Chinese historians throughout history. It's always been a concern and something they emphasize. Um, think about it when Xi Jinping came to power in 2012. The first thing he did, anti-corruption campaign. Yes, he's also used it to attack some of his high-level enemies and so on, but it's vital to the survival of 
any regime in China to fight corruption. And that awareness of how many regimes have been brought down by corruption is something that lives on in the minds of China's rulers today. So that's just one through line. And there are several of these. And I feel like people who want to understand China today, one of the reasons that um, it's really good to look at the history is that you get insights into why certain things happen the way they do, why certain reactions, which might seem strange to us, or certain policies, which might seem, you know, a little bit incomprehensible, are so important. So many incredible stories. So such an incredible volume. I am speaking with Linda Javen. We are discussing the shortest history of China. It does what it says on the box and so much more. Linda, thank you. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for sharing. We're on, we're on Zoom, so I'm showing the book, but people can't hear that. Thank, Linda Javen, thank you so much for taking the time to discuss the shortest history of China. Thank you so much, Andrew, for inviting me on to do it. Thank you. That's it for this great conversation with Linda Javen. Linda's new book is called The Shortest History of China. It's out now from Black Ink. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Ganagara people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch. You can find Final Draft on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. If you subscribe in your podcast app, wherever you get your podcasts, there will be a new Great Conversation every week. And we are about to launch into all of the new content for 2022, new books, new segments. There's going to be so much more to Final Draft in this, our 30th birthday year. Final Draft has been kicking around for 30 years, even though the podcast is only three years old. So this is a great time to subscribe. There is going to be so much incredible book content. There is going to be so much more to discover. My name is Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. Till then, happy reading.